All right, well, um, to give a little bit of context to what's happening in the life of our Sundays, we just finished a series through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, next week, we're actually going through a new sermon series. Uh, we call this sermon series The Family of God. And I think this is a great series for, especially if you're visiting our church or knowing, want to know about the church, how our church views church. And one metaphor that the Bible seems to give is they call the church family. But there's such a loaded, that's such a loaded term. And so we're going to talk about what that means and what that looks like for our church. It's not what you guys think in terms of the sermon series. I know a lot of us might have heard things about family before. But I really look forward to this one. And that's going to be a topical series that we'll be going over uh, starting next week. Uh, but today, we have a very, very special guest speaker. He is familiar to some of us or to most of us. And his name is Daniel Shim, because he, and he is our college director. Um, yeah, go ahead. You can clap. You can clap. You can clap. Go ahead. So Daniel Shim, our college director, he actually spoke for us before. Uh, and the, the reason why today, though, is special is the last time he spoke for us, it was over Zoom during the pandemic. And so we always said that even though in one sense he has preached to our church before, in another sense he kind of hasn't. And so today it's kind of, it almost feels like uh, that was a COVID moment and this is now like a non-COVID moment or debut. And that's going to be what's happening today. If you guys don't know who Daniel Shim is, uh, he is a member of our church staff. He is the college director and he took that role starting last year. Uh, he graduated from UCLA as a proud Bruin. And he is probably the most resourceful man at our church. Whenever something goes wrong, we all point everybody talk to Daniel because Daniel knows what to do. He's a dear brother for all of our staff and a lot of people here at our church. And not only that, but we just see this guy as a really gifted young guy. He's somebody that we want to pour into, especially myself and Pastor Sam. And he's somebody that we see as being very gifted. And we really feel like the Lord is using him right now. And we feel like the Lord is going to continue to use him. And so one thing that we've been doing is really praying for this brother, asking him to continue to grow in the Lord. And we're really excited for him to uh, come and to preach to us, not in front of a computer screen anymore, but on stage here on our Sunday. And so one more time, like we could welcome Daniel Shim as he comes and delivers God's word for us. Thank you, uh, Pastor Tom, for the, yeah, flattering introduction. You just took like three more minutes away from the sermon time, so I'll try to keep it short. I know we're trying to hit the park. Um, but yes, good morning, everyone. I am so glad to be here. And as Pastor Tom introduced, I am Daniel Shim. I oversee Sunday operations, college group, and yeah, just shout out to all the collegians. If you see new faces like in the, all these areas, these are like, collegians checking out our church. So I'm really looking forward to meeting and getting to know you guys better. And hopefully we as a church, we can introduce ourselves and get to know and be a church that really loves our collegians as well too. So yeah, this, this past weekend was a blur, to be honest with you. We had our launch and that was really exciting, but busy. Um, again, we have a bunch of things. Like we had more announcements than usual today too. So that took a couple more minutes away from sermon time. Um, but Hey, there's a lot of exciting things happening at our church, right? We have the park day, collegiate lunch, membership, all these things happening. And the thing I'm most excited about was, to be honest, like selfishly, was this day. Because as, as Pastor Tom mentioned, like it get, I got pushed back. It just kept happening and happening. We're like, okay, like will I ever get to preach for our church in person? And lo and behold, uh, there, were, there were some obstacles this morning as well too. Uh, yeah, Sequoia breaking down. If you guys know me, I have like a love-hate relationship with that car for our church. And yeah, a lot of things and crazy morning. But nonetheless, 
I'm here and I'm excited to preach God's word for us. And yeah, as we kind of take a detour before we go into our series on the family of God, I began to think a little bit about, hey, what does our church need to hear? I sifted through all these passages, uh, these topics, and you know, it's, it's really hard for me. I realized through that process that I'm really a guy that doesn't like making decisions. I hate making choices. Just tell me what to do. I'll execute it. Uh, but please, for, for the love of the Lord, don't make me make choices. But as I thought about it a little bit more, I realized, hey, I make choices. We all make choices every day, hundreds of them. Uh, for example, like I'm training for the marathon in November, so I make the choice that I'm not a morning person, but I wake up a little bit earlier to run five or six days in the morning. I make the choice to attend my classes, get, get work done. I choose what to eat for lunch and dinner. And we all make these choices, um, hundreds of choices throughout the day without even realizing it. And it's not to say that because we don't see them and realize them as choices that they're not important, right? If we don't, if we make the choice not to wake up on time, if we choose not to go into work, if we choose not to reply to our emails, then I'm sure we'll all face some pretty serious consequences. Uh, but I think for us, the, the choices that are most important are um, marriage. Who am I going to marry? Right? Who, what career am I going to pursue? Um, what is the next big purchase? Is it a home? Is it a car? I think in our minds, these big choices are the only important ones. But I want to argue today that, no, it's the small, everyday choices that we make, that we don't even realize we're making, that have the biggest impact on our lives. And today I want to talk about one choice that we all subconsciously make, uh, much like choosing what to eat, what to wear. I think this choice, it seems kind of insignificant. We don't put much thought into it. We forget that it's even a choice. So to do that, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Philippians in chapter 4. So if you want to open up your Bibles or your apps, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to see exactly what this choice is, why it's so important that we make the right choice. So we're going to look at four verses, four short verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It's the last chapter of the letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. It's right before Colossians. So we'll read Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. This is the reading of God's word. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, we want to see uh, what choice that we make, what choice is so important that we make as Christians, as followers of Christ. And uh, God, if I'm honest at this time, there is a little bit of a pressure to bring the word, to bring a little extra fire. But Lord, we know that it is your word and yours alone that will convict hearts and challenge and exhort and encourage us. So Lord, we trust that your word will not return empty. So we devote this time to you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says rejoice. And the, the theme of joy is one of the major uh, topics that Paul touches upon in this book of Philippians. And that is the choice that we're going to talk about this morning. This important choice we must make. The choice to rejoice. 
And, and yeah, to be honest, this word is something I definitely need this morning as I got the call at like 7. It's like, hey, Shim, the, the sequoia is not starting up. It's like, oh, my goodness, like I need to choose joy right now. <laughs> it's hard for me to do it, but I need to choose joy because I'm going to preach on it, right? As I think about our church, uh, I think, again, there's a lot of things to rejoice in. You know, college group, we have a lot more newcomers than I was expecting. Again, excited to meet you all. We're starting community groups again. I don't know if uh, your community group leaders reached out to you, but we're starting that this week. We have a lot of newcomers uh, coming. We, I got to see the welcome lunch last week, and that was just so encouraging to see connection happening. Obviously, meeting together like this after a year and a half, um, I'm definitely not going to take that for granted. That's a reason to rejoice. And it seems right now, at this point of our church's life, there's a lot of positive momentum, a lot of things to be excited about. Even personally, I had the opportunity to be the best man last Saturday for one of my closest friends. And yeah, that was really a really good time just to enjoy and celebrate uh, the newfound marriage. And it, there's a lot of things to rejoice about. But when I look back at this year and a half, uh, since March 2020 when COVID shut us down, like I tried to think like how many things can I really like point to that I was rejoice, rejoicing about. And like I... Probably less than the fingers on my hand, right? There was just nothing good, nothing good about COVID. Uh, Tim Keller, he states that the opposite of joy is not sadness, but hopelessness. And I think that feeling of hopelessness is an accurate description of something that we all felt at one point or another. Uh, when we didn't have control, when we saw that it doesn't matter how hard we try, things are just going to happen. And again, I'm not, I don't have to recap every single thing that happened uh, in this year and a half. But uh, I think Keller, Tim Keller, he has the right diagnosis, not only for us as a church, but for many Christians all over the country, all over the world, in finding joy or the difficulty in it. And in a time when we're slowly returning to our pre-COVID rhythms or more likely adapting to new ones, it seems like hopelessness rather than joy, that's kind of become our default approach to life. We've kind of accepted, okay, uh, COVID's going to keep on going. There's Delta, Lambda, Mu, probably New, all these letters, right? And we've just kind of accepted we have to put our heads down, just grit our teeth and get through this. Yet as one commentator, he puts it like this, talking about joy. His name is Marcus Bachmuel, very fun name to say. He says, as such, Christian joy is a basic and constant orientation of the Christian life. The fruit and evidence of a relationship with the Lord. It comes from what the Lord has done in the past, from what he's doing now, and from the hope of what he'll do in the future. It's nice. It's nice to read about. But to be honest, when we look at it, like, hey, in my relationship with the Lord, there isn't much to find joy in. In my relationship with the people around me, in the community around me, even in the church, there isn't much to find joy in. Yet what Marcus Bachmuel is saying is essentially joy to a Christian is like breathing to a human. It's training for an athlete. It's running the miles for a marathon runner, right? It's constantly happening. It's a conscious choice that we all make. Rather than being a luxury, joy is a necessity for us as Christians. To put it simply, to be a Christian is to have joy. And again, this might sound nice, but for some of us this might be off-putting, right? We might be thinking, okay, Shim, if you really knew what I was going through, you wouldn't be saying that I have to find joy right now. Right? Or some of us, we might be thinking, okay, like if joy is uh, essential to a Christian, then we'll just kind of grit our teeth, 
put, put on a fake smile and just kind of fake it till we make it, right? We'll, we'll pretend like we're joyful. But I think there's a reason why Bach Mule and all these other Christians and why I believe that joy is an essential part of following Jesus. So we're going to look at our passage today, again, these four verses to see why. Why is joy so essential for the Christian? And we'll look at three points, three aspects of this choice to rejoice. Uh, first, we're going to look at the prevention of joy. We're going to see what prevents us, what hinders us from choosing to rejoice. Then we're going to look at the path to rejoicing. How is it that we can rejoice? How is it that we can choose to rejoice? And lastly, we're going to look at the promise of joy. What does it look like for us when we actually choose to rejoice despite our circumstances? What does it look like for us to rejoice? So three Ps, hopefully it sticks, prevention, path, and promise of joy. So we'll first, we'll take a look at the first point. The prevention of joy. And in our passage today, I think there are two obstacles that I want to highlight for us. Two obstacles that prevent us from choosing joy. Um, I'll read the first part of verse 6 again for us really briefly. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about it. Do not be anxious about anything. And if that isn't a phrase that strikes a chord with all of us here, then I don't know what it is. Because there's a lot of research and statistics that I'm sure we've all seen where Anxiety, that is the most common mental, uh, mental disability in our country today. Uh, even for us that aren't, you know, clinically diagnosed, there's this low-grade humming of anxiety that goes on in the background of our lives, right? We have, we have you know, for collegians, for freshmen especially, you're adjusting to new, new uh, workload, this newfound freedom. Work is kind of like we're adjusting to all these things. We have so many responsibilities, even the church Right? I know there's a lot of us here that are serving and our, our days overlap. And it's, there's a low-grade anxiety that is humming on in the background of our lives. And I'll be honest, that's, that's me. I'm very guilty of this. Um, I have this to-do list. And I think a lot of the times I'm more concerned about updating it and make sure, making sure I have everything written down than actually, you know, executing the task. I get really anxious about, wow, there's so many things to do. And, and that can be debilitating, right? I'm sure for parents, there's a different kind of anxiety that kind of creeps into your life of just kind of making sure your kids are alive and, and well. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of things, a lot of causes for anxiety in our lives. And the first prevention of joy is anxiety. See, this word is uh, used by Paul here, and it conveys this sense of um, apprehension, this kind of concern that's not warranted. Uh, in a way, it kind of uh, brings you to this point where you're being torn apart, right? It's that concern we have of like, oh, I should make sure I turn the stove off before I leave. Uh, versus being away from home for four hours and realizing, wait, I left the stove on. My house is going to burn down. And this is the kind of anxiety that Paul is talking about. That, that deep concern, that, that worry that my world, our worlds might come crashing down at any second. And what's kind of interesting, what's incredible is that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And to give us a little bit of context, this church had every reason in the world to be anxious. They were dealing with poverty. They were going without food. They were hungry. Uh, within the church's walls, there were heretics coming in. Outside of it, there was persecution from Rome. And yet, Paul, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry. Don't worry about a single thing. Be happy, right? 
we might not be facing those things. In fact, I know we're not facing those things. You know, a lot of us, we're accustomed to the suburban life. Uh, but we do have our own troubles today. Right? I'd imagine if Paul was writing this letter to our church right now, he'd tell us, hey, don't worry about job security. Don't, don't worry about that. He's telling us as a church, hey, don't worry that you're meeting at Buena Park High School where something might happen where one Sunday we just might not have a place to worship. Like, don't worry about that. He's telling us, don't worry about legislations and laws that might get and hinder us from worshiping. He's saying even, don't worry about COVID-19. Don't worry about any of this stuff. And I think what Paul is pointing out is that, ironically, the things that we're most anxious about are the things that we have the least control over. Right? We can perform the best we can at our jobs and still find the notice, still, still get that meeting, and, and just find out, hey, you're gonna have, we're going to have to let you go. We can try our best to parent our children. We can try and read all the books and attend all the seminars. And there's still a chance, a really sad chance that our kids might denounce their faith in the future. There's this anxiety. We can even do our best even to mask up, get vaccinated, take all these measures and still get infected by COVID. Ironically, the things that we have the least control over, that's where we are the most anxious. And I I think at the root of it is... We have this preoccupation, almost this obsession with control. I think our anxiety, it can be a symptom. It reveals that our belief in God is actually unbelief. We don't believe that God is in control. Right? We, we somehow think that we have to ourselves take care of these circumstances. We have to figure it out without God. And that's what we choose to do. Right? What, what are we anxious about? I think, I think there's a lot of things I could say, but could our desire to have control over these things be revealing that even though with our mouths we say we believe in God, we believe in the gospel, but in our hearts we're actually choosing to trust in our own power, in our own understanding. And in reality, because we don't have that power, because we don't have that understanding, we have this feeling of hopelessness, of anxiety. I wonder if this might be the case for some of us. Where our hopelessness, it prevents us from having joy, choosing to rejoice. And I remember feeling this way uh, quite vividly uh, around the uh, end of my senior year in college. Um, I don't think a lot of people know, but um, I was actually at my previous church supposed to transition into being the uh, children's ministry director. And, you know, now that I see Tim uh, doing that, it's like, okay, good thing I dodged that bullet. Just kidding. I love our children. (laughs) But I remember... um, I was supposed to transition into it, but I still don't know 100% of the details, but that just no longer became an option. And that was kind of like where I put all of my eggs into the, that basket, where, okay, I think God's calling me to pastoral ministry. There's this great opportunity. And then it just kind of felt like it got taken out from underneath my feet. And that, that got me into this place of hopelessness, of anxiety, of worry, of kind of, hey, I thought this was the plan. I thought this was where God was leading me, but apparently not. <laughs> Right? It, le- it led me to that place of questioning my call. Uh, these, all these different thoughts consumed my mind and really it prevented me from, you know, being joyful, of choosing to find contentment. Eventually, obviously, I'm here. I found my way to our church here. But during that process, that summer after I graduated from college, it was filled with anxiety and hopelessness. I don't really f- remember feeling happy at all during that time. And for some of us, we might be feeling that way. 
Uh, even in our ministry, and maybe especially for those of us that are serving within the church, we might be operating out of anxiety and hopelessness. Right? And that really prevents us from serving God with joy, of joyful obedience. And uh, the, the word for anxiety that's used here, uh, it's the same one that Jesus uses with Martha in, chap- in Luke chapter 10. And uh, our, our staff, we've been kind of reflecting and meditating upon that verse, especially as we serve, especially as we have so many things to do of Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, right? Whether it's church ministry, whether it's work, whether it's personal, whatever it is, we are, we are troubled and anxious about many things. And because of that, because of our anxiety, perhaps that's the reason some of us are especially joyless inside the church. Because we choose to work out of duty and legalism rather than out of obedience and joy. That's why Paul... He exhorts the Philippians not to be anxious about anything, right? Because it's clear as day, being anxious, having anxiety, that's an obstacle. That prevents us from rejoicing in the Lord. So anxiety, that's the first obstacle. The second obstacle that prevents us from choosing joy is self-centeredness. Big word, but let's go back to, chapter, uh, to verse 5. Really short. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You're thinking, okay, Paul says reasonableness, but how does that have to do with self-centeredness, right? Um, It makes sense uh, when when we read verses uh, 2 and 3. Because Paul, he's talking to uh, these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, and basically what he's telling them is like, hey, squash the beef, just reconcile. And then after that, he tells the church, everyone in the church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. And right after, he says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. And the ESV, uh, it translates the word as reasonableness, but I think, and a lot of commentators, they agree, they say it's not reasonableness per se, maybe gentleness is a better word. And we can't really just use one word to convey what, what Paul's really meaning, but what it means is the sense of a person being willing to yield, to, to be kind, to be gentle. Uh, the, the Greek lexicon says it, it's someone that's not insistent on every right letter of the law. And again, it's striking that Paul says that right after saying rejoice, right? Rejoice and be gentle. Rejoice and be considerate of others. Rejoice and yield to others. That's what he's saying. And the self-centered person, right, we might know someone that is self-centered. We might be that self-centered person. That self-centered person is always going to insist on his or her own way. And inevitably when his or her desire rubs up against someone else's, they're going to get a little bit nasty, right? There's no joy in this person. There's no joy in anyone around this person. I mentioned in the beginning that uh, last week I had the privilege of being part of the bridal party. And um, great time. I had a blast. My heart was definitely filled with joy for the couple. And I like to think of myself as a pretty decently gentle and humble guy. I think I'm kind. You can agree or disagree. But imagine, let's just hypothetically say, imagine I wasn't. Imagine I was just this most selfish, prideful, self-centered guy in the world. And imagine if uh, at the rehearsal dinner, I kind of talked to to my friend Andrew and say, hey, Andrew, I think you shouldn't be standing there. Maybe uh, we should change the order. Andrew, I don't, I don't know if this food is good. Can we kind of change it the night before? This playlist is really whack. Uh, let, me, let me give you a playlist, right? If, if I was insistent on my own way, if, if this wedding was basically for me, oh, I'd probably
probably be uninvited. I'd probably be like, hey, don't come to the wedding tomorrow. I'd be missing the point, right? Because the wedding, it's not about me. It's not about my selfish preferences or desires. The wedding is about the couple, about the bride and the groom. And it's about finding and locating my joy, not in myself, but in the bride and the groom. And I think, I wonder, this might be the reason why it's so hard for some of us to be joyful. Right? We're so sucked up into our own joy, into finding what satisfies ourselves, that we don't give a second thought to our brothers and sisters within the church, brothers and sisters at home, our friends, our fa- anyone else in our community. And could it be that because we don't consider others, because we aren't gentle, because we are self-centered, that it's so hard for us to find joy? Right? Do we make the choice to locate our joy in the Lord and his people? Or do we locate our joy solely in ourselves? Augustine, he has this quote, and it's a beautiful one. He says, when large numbers of people share their joy in common, the happiness of each is greater because each adds fuel to the other's flame. Right? What he's saying is, when we as a church community, when we are centered around Christ, when we find our joy in Christ, we, we not only feel uh, a joy that is good, but our joy, it's not an individual experience. It's actually enhanced. It's more fully felt together in community. It's more powerfully felt when we are all enjoying the same thing in common. Joy is not an individual endeavor. It's a communal endeavor. I mean, look at Paul's usage of the word rejoice just in Philippians. Right? None of them are focused on his own benefit. It might be up there. 118. What, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Chapter 217. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. A little bit later in 228. I am the more eager to send him. This is Epaphrodites. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I might be less anxious. 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Not in me, rejoice in the Lord. Write the same things to you, no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Joy is something that is not found in ourselves, but is found in community. It's found when we look outside, when it's others-centric. And I think that's a reflection of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They delight, they find joy when they carry out the will of the Father, when they execute the Son's task. Right? Their joy is located in each other. And practically speaking, I think for us, the greatest external source of joy as Christians, it's found in serving other believers, in seeing them mature, in seeing them grow, rather than us kind of just being filled up by ourselves. When we're not self-centered and we become other-centered, we find true joy because that's how Jesus himself operated. Right? Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. So the two obstacles that prevent joy, anxiety, and self-centeredness. Anxiety, which at the root of it lies this hunger for control. And self-centeredness, which discounts the joy of everyone else. And believe you me, there are definitely a lot more obstacles to finding joy, to making that choice. But these are the two, at least from our text, that we see that prevent joy. 
So now that we have a diagnosis, we're, we're going to look at the second point, the path to rejoicing. How can we rejoice? How can we make this choice? We're going to read uh, verse 6 again. Um, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the path to rejoicing, the answer is very simple. It's another P. It's prayer. Prayer is the path to choosing to rejoice. And Paul, he uses three different words to describe prayer, and I think that's intentional. I think it's to give a fully ordered picture of what prayer is, right? He says prayer, which is just this approach to God, coming to God with our request. Supplication is coming to God not just to talk to him, but to tell him there is this urgent need, Lord. This is what I need. And the request, which are the specific things that we come to him and ask him for. Three different words to give us a fully orbed picture of prayer. They all work together to convey that joy can only be found when we approach the Lord, what does he say, with thanksgiving. When we come and approach the Lord in utter dependence. When we say, Jesus, you're the only one that can give me joy. The heart of gratitude, it looks at what God has done, is doing, and will do. Right, Deuteronomy 26, 11 says, this is God speaking, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. All the good. It's this acknowledgement of God's provision of not just material blessings, but ultimately joy. Joy, and that is the key to our prayer, our thanksgiving, our heart of gratitude. It's our heart to choose to, despite our circumstances, place and locate our trust, joy in him. Another commentator, uh, Walter Hansen, he says, prayer orients our lives towards God. We grow in an open relationship with God by preserving our specific needs and desires to him. Prayer orients our lives towards God. When we come to God, our lives are oriented toward him. That's, it's just a natural result. Not only that, but we grow in our relationship with him. We get to know him not just as this distant God, but as father, as friend. I mentioned uh, during one of the Zoom sermons, so I don't know how many people were paying attention, but <laughs> I used to work for uh, State Farm, and it, it was a very short time, but one of the things I really didn't like uh, about working at State Farm was um, somehow I got tricked into becoming a salesman. Like, I, I was brought on as just, hey, you're going to do, you're going to be an administrative assistant, um, and then like a month later, hey, we're going to train you to be a sales guy, and like, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> But what that meant was what I had to do every single day, I had to do something called cold calling. And uh, for those of you in sales or who have done it, it's like there's this dread within my stomach even like mentioning it. Because, I mean, like 90% of the time, like no one would pick up and I'd be like, okay, like I'm cool. But the 10%, the 10% when people actually picked up, it would just be like, I guess rejection would be like a nice way to put it. But it's like, yo, like we told you to, you know, stop calling us, who the... All these things, right? And I'll just kind of feel like, man, like, I didn't sign up for this. And we ha I have this kind of aversion, even now when I have to, like, you know, make calls to people I've never talked to. But lots of times I feel like prayer can kind of feel similarly to us, right? We kind of feel like our prayers are not an approach to our father, but more of a cold call to a potential client, Right? We come to God and we say, Lord, can you just spare me one minute today? I have this great pitch for um, what I want from you. Prayer can feel like that sometimes. Right? 
Yet this is exactly the opposite of what the Lord desires. Paul says that in everything, in everything, make our requests known to him. Prayer, supplication, and request, right? And actually, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, which we're going to try to get every person here a copy of. We have like 200 copies sitting somewhere. Um, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland he says it like this. He says, to put it the other way around, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. Right? Talking about prayer, when we come to him and make our requests known to him, ask for forgiveness, ask for things, this is what Christ lives to do. This is what he loves to do. Our joy and his rise and fall together. So when we do come to him in prayer, I promise you, he's not going to hang up the phone. He's going to pick up. He's going to stay on the line with you however long you need him to be there. And the path to rejoicing, it really runs along the prayers that we lift up to the Lord. And one of the biggest realizations that I had a couple of years ago about prayer um, happened in one of my first classes at Talbot at seminary. I thought for the longest time in my legalistic, pharisaical way that, hey, for God to listen to me, for God to hear my prayers, I have to kind of put myself together. I have to polish up. I have to get ready and I have to come to him before I say anything. But as I learned, if that was the case, then none of us would be able to pray, right? None of us would be able to approach God because we're all dirty. We all have sin. None of us would be able to approach him. But prayer is actually the, the arena by which we become clean, by which we get acquainted with the Father, by which we get to know him. It's the place where we bring our anxieties, our hopelessness, our longing for joy. It's in prayer that our relationship with the Lord deepens. And I know what you're thinking. You think prayer, I've heard that before. That's all you guys have been saying these like past couple months. And prayer, it might not seem practical, but I argue that prayer is extremely practical. It, it's like the main way that we can come to God. It's the way that we come to God. Right? Like Ortland says, Jesus' joy and our joy, they rise and fall together. And that can only happen in prayer. Right? We know 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, if we've been in church, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's just a copy and paste of this text right here. Right? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. That's how we rejoice always. Have this heart of gratitude. That's how we find joy. That's the will of God for us, that we rejoice. And I want to challenge us all. Maybe we are kind of lethargic spiritually. Maybe it's, it's not maybe. It's for sure been difficult for us, right? Spiritually, just our habits, our choices to build or destroy habits this season. It's been hard for us, but maybe it's hard for us to find joy because simply we're just lacking in prayer, right? What, what is prayer for us? Is it just like before a meal? Is it like two minutes before our commute, before we turn our podcast on? Like what is prayer for us? Is prayer just kind of like empty words we just throw up and kind of hope God listens to? Is it something where we kind of feel like we have to freshen up, we have to get our stuff together before we actually come before the Lord? And no way am I saying, okay, like, therefore, church, the practical application is we need to spend at least an hour in prayer every day. Like, that's, I wouldn't, yeah, not yet. Um, 
But I think I want to challenge all of us, exhort all of us to come to God honestly, a couple minutes at a time. Drop all your pretenses. Drop all these kind of holy Christianese terms in prayer. Just come to him. Right? We're starting community groups this week. Maybe for some of us, we can partner with someone. We can, we can find our, and locate our joy in Christ together. I encourage all of us to let's take prayer a little bit more seriously. Let's ask for joy. Let's become joyful people. The prayer is the path where we acknowledge our lack of control and where we submit ourselves to the one who does. In choosing to pray, we're choosing to rejoice. And we'll see that rejoice, to rejoice is not just to rejoice in our circumstances, but in the Lord who rules over them. Right? Prayer is the path to rejoicing. So we'll look at our last aspect of our choice to rejoice, which is the promise of joy. Uh, the promise of joy, we're going to look at the last verse of our passage. That it's going to tell us what our lives will look like when we choose to rejoice. So verse 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. For Paul, joy and peace, they're closely tied. And that makes sense, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. These, these are the fruits of the Spirit, right? They, they all come together to make one fruit. So love and joy are intimately intertwined. So it makes sense that when we choose to rejoice in the Lord, what we're doing is we're choosing to find peace. By rejoicing in the Lord, we're finding peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And, and, and Paul, he tells us that God, he promises to give us peace, right? When we come to him by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, when we let our request be made known to God, he's saying the peace of God, it's going to guard your hearts. It's going to guard your minds. The very peace that comes from him, it's, it's going to guard our hearts from anxiety, from trouble, from sorrow. But we have to know, again, that Christians, just because we find joy, just because we choose to rejoice, it doesn't mean that, okay, nothing bad's going to happen to us. Like, no. Probably more things bad are going to happen to us, right? We're going to go through immense sorrow. But what Paul is telling us is that the peace of God, it's going to prevent those things that will happen from having this disproportionate, overwhelming impact on us. Paul is telling us the peace of God is going to protect us from that. This peace, uh, it's, it's an inner sense of contentment. God supplies it to us. It doesn't come and go with the seasons and the circumstances. But this peace of God, it remains with us as long as we remain in him. Sam Storms, he's a pastor and author. He says, joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. It's not the absence of suffering. It's not the absence of tough things that happen. It's that God is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Right, we know about believers everywhere, um, in our cities, in Afghanistan, uh, but right, in, right inside this room as well. Right? We know people that have gone through immense amounts of sorrow, tremendous suffering. I know some people here, myself included, that have lost loved ones this past year and a half. I know people that have gone through extremely difficult issues with their families. I know people struggling with having a child, of having miscarriages. I know people that have financial issues that they're too ashamed to share about, right? There's a lot more people here that I'm sure are going through other things that I'm unaware of. 
And yet, as 2 Corinthians 6.10 shows us, Christians, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We go through these things, we, we have sorrows in our lives, but we're able to sing, even in the valley, you are faithful. Right? In your suffering, God promises you a peace that surpasses all understanding. It surpasses all understanding because the natural response to losing a job, to getting laid off, is to prep the resume, the cover letters, get on LinkedIn and apply. Natural response to, to betrayal is anger and wanting vengeance. The, the instinct of having yet another miscarriage is to turn to God and ask why. It's to curse at him. Yet when we as believers, when we choose to rejoice in the Lord rather than defaulting to these reactions, we get peace. We get peace that guards our hearts, our minds. And in the Greek, I'm sure some of you have heard this, the heart, the cardia, is not just this organ that pumps blood inside of us. But the Greek cardia means that our heart is the entire inner being of the Christian. The peace and joy of the Lord helps us that our emotions, our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our choices that we make, they're all guarded by Christ. To choose joy means that we fully trust that there's a purpose that God has when a loved one is going through deconstruction, when our families are going through turmoil, when we have relational fallouts. There's a purpose for all of those things. And joy, joy is this, this Christian version of the scarlet letter, right? You'll know it when you see it. You'll, it'll be very obvious. So when the outside world, when they see a Christian, they see joy. And that joy, it kind of surpasses all understanding. It makes them think, how are these Christians, how are these people able to remain so joyful to, despite their circumstances? Right? How are they still able to praise God instead of cuss and curse him out? It's because it's Christ Jesus. It's Christ Jesus himself who guards over our minds and our hearts. Uh, Pastor Sam, uh, he mentioned this a couple weeks ago uh, when he preached on Nehemiah 8, so that might be too long for a lot of us, but he says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's not our strength. It's not, it's not our joy. It's the joy of the Lord. That is what gives us strength. That is what protects us. That is what enables us to find joy. It's him, not us. Jesus' peace it surpasses all of our plans, all of our anxieties, all of our coping mechanisms, everything that we do to try to find joy. When we do this, when we live joyfully, when we choose to rejoice, we point to the source of this peace. Right, and I want to take a look at just five words in the middle of our passage. It's right at the beginning of verse 5. End of verse 5, sorry. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Jesus is at hand. Jesus is near. And that's what allows us to rejoice. That's what uh, promises us to give us joy. The Lord is near to us both in terms of time and space. We know that as Christians, we believe that Jesus will come. He will have his second coming. We'll be with him forever. We'll spend eternity with him. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Not only in terms of time, but space as well. We believe as Christians, the Holy Spirit, for those who profess the gospel, he dwells within us, in our cardia, in our hearts right now, at this present moment. In time and space, the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And that's the key. That's the key to our ability to choose joy. 
right? The answer to this question of how, what, why are we able to is because, because of Jesus Christ, right? Just like any other Sunday school answer. Jesus Christ, because of him. It's, the verses are not up there, but this Jesus Christ is the one in John 14 where he tells his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the same Jesus in John 15, 11. He talks to his disciples again. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy, my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. This is the Jesus in Matthew 26, 39, right before his arrest and crucifixion. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right, and it wasn't obvious at that point, but when we take a look at the life of Jesus, in the moments leading up to his death, what Jesus did was choose joy. That's what he was doing. In the face of death, which is like the ultimate provoker of anxiety, Jesus, he chose joy. He honestly, in prayer, petitioned, made his request known to God, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but your will be done, not mine. By doing this, he left us a peace that will not let our hearts be troubled, that will not let us be anxious. By doing this, he spoke words to us so that our joy would be made full. And it's the gospel. It's the good news. That's why we're able to have joy. This is the promise of joy. The promise of joy is the gospel. For those of us that have been Christians for a while, it might be numb. It might be uh, stale. But the choice for joy, the choice to rejoice, is the choice to believe in the gospel each and every morning. It's to believe that Christ came down, incarnate son of God, lived a perfect life, took on, took on flesh, took on sins, was crucified and resurrected. For us, for his glory. For those of us who might be here who have never heard the gospel before, doesn't this joy kind of, doesn't it make you feel a little bit curious? Doesn't it seem like this, this sense of peace, this sense of joy, it's something that I'm at least intrigued about. The promise of joy that we have is simply the gospel. It's the good news of Christ coming down, taking on our sins. I can't conclude a sermon without a quote from Tim Keller. <laughs> He's like the pope for Protestants, especially in our church too. But um, talking about rejoicing, Tim Keller, he says, what we rejoice in is whatever is our central sweetness and comfort in life. To rejoice in something is to treasure it, to access its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. What we rejoice in reveals our treasure, what we actually put our hope in. And there is someone uh, in my life that uh, I think lived this out of really locating his joy in Christ. Um, it's my friend Glenn. And Glenn was a friend in seminary. Um, met him just a little bit, a little over two years ago. We were in a cohort together and... Yeah, he, uh, he was a lawyer, successful lawyer from Canada, felt this call that God was leading him to ministry, came down, started 
classes. We ran into each other. And as I got to know him a little bit better, uh, found out that he was dealing with cancer. Right? He, like, he moved down from Canada, made this bold choice. He's dealing with cancer. <laughs> like, that's nuts. I thought he was just bald because, like, he just wants to be bald. But he was going through treatment. And because it had been going on for so long, his wife decided, hey, I can't, I can't put up with this. Let's get a divorce. Took his two daughters away. Right? He was dealing with that, was getting better, was recovering. And then suddenly his dad got cancer. <laughs> like, dude, when, when, when is he going to catch a break? Right? He was dealing with all of this. And sadly, uh, Glenn, he passed away in May. Um, went through a lot. I'm still, still struggle to kind of understand uh, just the timing of it all. But uh, what really stood out to me was for Glenn, there was no place to be angry with God, right? Because God was really all he had. There was no other source of joy or satisfaction when he was dealing with cancer and chemo. When he had to fight over custody with his wife, ex-wife. There was no other place to find joy when his dad got cancer. Right? The only source of joy and satisfaction that he had was in Christ, was in the Lord. He lived out rejoice in the Lord. There, he didn't have to understand why things happened the way it did. He didn't have to have control over the, the timing of all these things. In the face of struggle, in the, in the face of sorrow, he chose to rejoice. And that will always stick with me. No matter how hard things will be, I'll be reminded of Glenn and his choice to rejoice. Right? We sang faithful forever, perfect in love. You're sovereign over us. Right? It's in the face of struggle of disorienting circumstances when we're tempted to kind of not choose joy but just to figure it out but it's in those moments when we choose to rejoice when we choose to locate our satisfaction in God that's when God is particularly glorified when we trust him obey him and are content in him that's when God is satisfied that's what gives him glory and that's what gives us his peace that surpasses all understanding. And church, I think, I think we, it, it can be easy for us during this time when there is momentum. There's a lot of exciting things happening at our church, right? It's, it can be easy for us to kind of move forward, but we can move forward without joy. We can move forward without prayer. We can just kind of do these things out of our own strength and understanding. But if that were to happen, what would be the difference between our church and any other secular, non-Christian organization? Not much, right? So I challenge us, I exhort us, let's choose to rejoice. Let's move forward with joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer honestly. Let's bring our petitions, our supplications, our requests to him. Let's choose to rejoice. At this time, I want to invite us into a couple moments of reflection of anything that, yeah, might be hindering us from rejoicing, that might be any anxieties we have, any feelings of hopelessness. I invite us to take a couple moments to reflect upon the word that was preached, reflect upon how 
the Lord might be inviting us to choose to rejoice today for all day. So we'll take a couple more moments to reflect.